offering my most loving pranams at Bhagwan's lotus feet. Dear listeners, it gives me great pleasure to welcome you once again to yet another episode of the Gita series, A Triune Pilgrimage. This is Prem, your friend from Team Radio Sai, as always, coming to you live from our studios at Prashantinilyam. This is a series where we go through the Bhagavad Gita verse by verse in uh, as much detail as we can, because that is what the beautiful text deserves. And it is one of the scriptures which has got special attention from Swami. There is an entire book on it. The Gita Vahini is about it. And uh, a series of 30-odd discourses that Swami gave in the year 1984 was entirely on the Bhagavad Gita. And thanks to Swami going into all of these verses in depth, not necessarily each one of the verses, but the major ones, and the basic idea of the Bhagavad Gita itself, I think we have the opportunity to rely back on Swami's message. And as we saw last week, that is also a very important means by which, or a, a method by which one has to go through scriptures. Right, with the guidance of the words of the Guru. I think that is the opportunity we all have and we should ever be grateful for that. Coming to this week's episode, we're going to continue with the second chapter. We are in the middle of it. In fact, uh, we are going to go through a portion which is in a sense an important part of the second chapter. We covered three verses last time. I'll probably give you a short summary of what we did last week before we go on to what we have for this week. The three verses that we covered last time are verses 52, 53 and 54. Verse 52 was Krishna continuing to speak on the benefits of Buddha Yoga because this is the part where Krishna is talking about Karma Yoga but he defines it through this word called Buddha Yoga where he says that for our regular activity or karma we constantly use the intellect or the buddhi or the discrimination and this buddhi, when it is modified or when it is spiritualized, if I could use that word, then normal karma becomes karma yoga. So that is what Krishna is emphasizing on and how to develop that buddhi yoga. And that is what is the discussion which has been going on in the past couple of weeks when it comes to our program and the past few shlokas when it comes to the Bhagavad Gita itself. In verse number 52, Krishna says that this approach of buddhi yoga it can give the ultimate, right? That's something which he's been repeating over and over again. In this verse, he says that when the buddhi transcends the moras of maya or moha kalilam, it cannot be distracted by anything that has been heard or anything that is going to be heard. So many times we hear some things and at that time it does not influence our mind. But later, when scenarios happen around us, the situations are created we might think of something we have heard in the past and that might distract us or we might be in a state of supreme confidence till we come in contact with people or material that can disturb or distract or destabilize us. But in the case of Buddha Yoga, Krishna says the ultimate is when you reach the ultimate stage, the mind completely transcends the moras of Maya and it can never be distracted by whatever Words are heard or have been heard already. Shrotavyasya, Shrutasyacha. What has been already heard and what is going to be heard too. The understanding of course is that as Buddhi Yoga is practiced, right? We are all talking about the ability to follow the Karma Yoga and the ultimate will eventually come. But even as the Buddhi Yoga is practiced, it begins to insulate us more and more from the distractions that come our way. So this verse can also be seen from the point of view of the interpretations of the scriptures because that is again a refrain which has been going on where Krishna talks about how the Vedas can be misinterpreted more than being misinterpreted can be spoken of as a tool for attaining more pleasures in the world whereas it has in it wisdom which is much larger than that. right? So to speak of the Vedas as having pleasures and success of the world alone as its ends is the misinterpretation that we are referring to. So this verse in that sense can also be spoken of as when Krishna says Shrutavyasya, Shrutasyacha. It could also mean the misinterpretations of the Shrutis or the Vedas. And in verse number 53 he goes on to say which is more or less a summary of this particular portion of chapter 2 where Krishna speaks about Buddha Yoga. Krishna speaks of Two things that are vital for yoga or attaining yoga. 
a mind that is not distracted by temptations and the mind that is turned inward and established in the divinity within. And we have discussed how this is precisely how Swami says is the most important thing that has to be practiced in the path where of course he words it differently he says even as Dehabhimanam is given up Atmabhimanam has to be established even as body consciousness is discarded Atmic consciousness has to be established if we were to look at it from the point of view of Karma Yoga even as we do our duty without being tempted by cravings of the senses we must also work on establishing ourselves on the highest truth this double-pronged or dual approach is what is important. In fact, we are going to speak a little more about this because the next verse also mentions this. So this is one of the means which Krishna gives in the form of summarizing this particular thing. And this point is one of the most critical. As I said, it is going to feature again in this week's episode and it is going to come again and again in the future episodes too. So when we look at it, what is important is, you know, there are a lot of people who read a little bit of Advaita or take to the Advaitic concepts. It's very easy to be inspired by Advaita or very, very esoteric subjects like that. But Swami would always emphasize that that knowledge of Advaita or being inspired by Advaita should be coupled with the discipline of the senses. This is, I think I would not be wrong in saying, is the bedrock of Swami's message, right? And similarly, When we are trying to develop a disciplined life, let's say in our children or in the children in society, in the form of the education that we give them, the discipline alone is not important. To an extent, we have to teach them how to express the divinity within in the form of divine qualities like compassion, love and the human values as Swami would say it. So both of these approaches are important in the spiritual path. One is to be established in the truth of Vedanta or Advaita or however you would like to define that. At the same time, a certain amount of discipline in the life, in one's approach to life, disciplining of the senses is very, very important. The final verse that we discuss is is where we're going to take off from because the, the verse number 54 is the first verse after a long time when Arjuna speaks up. And as I said, verse number 53 could have well been the end of the Bhagavad Gita and Arjuna said, all right, Krishna, I got your point. Let's go and take on the Kauruvas. But thankfully, Arjuna did not do that. Arjuna raised a question. And this is going to be first of the many, many questions that Arjuna is going to raise. And because he has raised all these questions, Krishna explains. And because Krishna has explained, we have this wonderful opportunity to learn of the topics that Krishna is going to cover in the Bhagavad Gita. So we all are grateful to Arjuna that he spoke up. And verse number 54 is Arjuna asking a very important question. He says, he uses the word for the first time, stita pragna, because from all that Krishna has said, he has understood that he is talking of a person who has wisdom and not only has wisdom, but he has wisdom that is stable, that is established, that is having a strong footing in the mind of the person. So he coins the word stita pragna, one who is stable in wisdom and goes on to ask give me a description of this stita pragna one who is steady in wisdom and arjuna goes on to ask kim prabhashase kim asit vrajate kim which means how does he speak how does he sit how does he walk arjuna is actually not interested in really the external traits of that person that is not the idea he does not want to know how and what and what language Astita Pragna speaks or how does he sit down and when he sits down, how does he get up or how does he walk? This is not what Arjuna wants to know. Arjuna is actually interested in the inner mechanism of Astita Pragna. And how do we know that? Because we know that from the answer that Krishna is going to give. Because as we always say, you know, we might ask any number of questions. Intellectual person can answer our questions, but only a master, only the guru can answer the person who is asking the question. So even though the question that Arjuna is asking is, how does he walk, how does he sit, how does he speak? The idea behind the question is, what is the mechanism that goes on inside the mind of a person who becomes a sthita pragna? And there is a reason for that, and we'll come to that. So Krishna goes on to answer this question, not by saying that this is how he behaves, but he goes on to say, this is who a true sthita pragna is. Right, He goes on to a fundamental definition. In fact, 
the next verse that we are going to discuss, verse number 55, could well be described as the quintessential definition of Astita Pragna. In two simple lines, Krishna is going to define Astita Pragna. Of course, it is again, whatever he has been telling in the form of Buddha Yoga, it's all repetition. And it is thankfully repetition because a very important part of the spiritual path is Mananam, constant Mananam. We need to remind ourselves of this again and again and again and again. Right? We are not, as Swami would very beautifully say, you are not tired of feeding the body three times a day. Why should you be tired of feeding the soul any number of times? Right? So it is a repetition, but it is a repetition we should be grateful for that we are able to remember these things again and again. So we'll go to verse number 55. As always, very, very clearly and beautifully rendered by Brother Sham, one of our alumnus. We'll listen to the verse. I'll give you a short meaning of that and then we'll discuss in detail about verse number 55, chapter number 2. Shri Bhagavanuvacha Prajahati Yadakaman Sarvan Parthamanogatan Atman Yevatmanatushtaha Sthita Pragnyastadochyate Lord Krishna replied, When a man has given up the desires of his heart and is satisfied with the self alone, be sure that he is called a man of steady wisdom, Sthita Pragna. Well, as I mentioned, Krishna does not go into how Sthita Pragna talks and walks and sits, but goes into a description of the mindset behind Astita Pragna. Remember that Krishna is asking Arjuna to become Astita Pragna, right? That is where all of this begins. The whole thing is Krishna is trying to tell Arjuna that become Astita Pragna and carry on with whatever work you're supposed to do. Let's say that Arjuna becomes Astita Pragna. Wouldn't Arjuna, the warrior who is Astita Pragna, be different from, say, a farmer who becomes Astita Pragna or let's say that a Brahmin or a teacher or woodcutter who becomes Astita Pragna, will not there be difference between these people? Yes, there will be a few common traits, but the gait, the language, it's not necessary that they'll all be in a similar pattern, isn't it? But what will surely be common is the approach they have to life, right? The mental attitude with which they approach life. So Krishna goes back to that fundamental definition of Astita Pragna. He says, Partha, O Arjuna, Yada, when Sarvan Kaman, all desires, Manogatan, even as they arise in the mind, Prajahati, are given up, Atmani Eva, in oneself alone, Atmana, and with oneself, Tushtaha, is satisfied or happy, Stita Pragnaha, Tada Uchyate, then and then alone he is called a Stita Pragna. As we discussed, Krishna doesn't give a physical description, I mean, repeating that again, does not give a physical description of Sthita Pragna, nor does he refuse to give one, right? Nor does he say that, Arjuna, what are you asking this foolish question? Instead, he reiterates that a person of steady wisdom doesn't become one by any physical trait whatsoever. He concludes that verse with the statement, Sthita Pragna Tada Uchyate. Such a person alone is called or defined as a Sthita Pragna suggesting that he cannot be defined by any other trait whatsoever. And Krishna mentions two points, two points that are complementary, right? Very similar to what I mentioned in the summary. He says, the sthita pragna has given up all desires. And secondly, atmani eva atmana tushtaha. He remains satisfied in himself. A hint about the lexicon or the Sanskrit language here. The word Atma, of course, we use it for the higher self or the divine self within us. But in the Sanskrit language, the Atma is also used in the context of just the self. Just like how we use the word self in English to mean myself, you know, I'm uh, selfish, right? There also we use the same self. But when we talk about the higher self, also we use the word self. Just that, you know, in our articles, we put a capital S when we're talking about the divine self. Similarly, in a Sanskrit language, when we use the word Atma, it means the higher self, the divine self, 
at the same time it also means myself right and that is the context in which the word atma is going to be used in a few of these verses that we'll be covering so he says atmani eva atmana tushtaha he remains satisfied or happy in himself of course it also goes without saying that the masculine is used only as an indicative it says he all through the verses krishna is going to describe stitta pragna as a he of course it does not mean that a stitta pragna can only be a man i think it goes without saying but i'm just mentioning it so these are the two qualities that define a person of wisdom or a stitta pragna the next few verses krishna is going to speak further and you know he will explain this a little more in fact he'll be speaking about the first aspect or what he spoke of as removing the desires more and more right there is a certain reason for that though he is mentioning two points here one is he should be satisfied in himself and he should be giving up desires as they arise in mind but krishna will emphasize on that first point of giving up desires more there is a very beautiful reason for that but before we come to that let us talk about these two points a little more especially the reason i would like to do that is because swami has very clearly explained and dilated about these two points in the gita vaini swami says that there are two processes involved one is negative and one is positive negative in the sense of negating something positive in the sense of developing something right so swami says these are two points that are involved one is negative one is positive the negative is the removal of desires the positive is the implanting of happiness removing desires swami says is like the weeding process and the developing of ananda is like the sowing of the seeds right that is a beautiful analogy that swami gives but then swami goes on to say a very very important thing and that's what i want to call your attention to that if we were to concentrate on the process of getting rid of the desires alone automatically the latter will also be achieved and swami explains this in the gita vaini i would like to quote those three or four lines Swami says and I quote the mind is a bundle of wishes and unless these wishes are removed by their roots there is no hope of destroying the mind which is a great obstacle in the path of spiritual progress when the yarn that comprises the cloth is taken out one by one what remains of the cloth nothing the mind is made of the warp and woof of wishes when mind vanishes one becomes steady in wisdom in other words one becomes astita pragna end of quote there are some very important understandings that come from what swami is saying here right swami says desirelessness and being self satisfied are the two qualities interestingly when we use the word self satisfied in the english language it is used pretty derogatorily like saying that when you say that i am self satisfied you are happy with yourself or you are happy with your own achievements it's almost like a little bit of egotistical person is described as a self satisfied person but here being self satisfied is used in a completely different context when krishna says atmanyeva atmanatushtah it means one who does not have to seek anything which is external to find happiness this is the highest state right so if i'm happy because i have something i can always become sad when that thing is taken away from me isn't it if i am happy because people respect me every time someone disrespects me i will lose my happiness so the moment my happiness is placed on anything that is external the switch for making me unhappy has also been placed on that thing outside but when i become an atmanyeva atmanatushtah very beautifully worded atmanyeva atmanatushtah my bliss comes only from myself you can take away what is mine what belongs to me but you cannot take away me from me isn't it you cannot take myself away from me that is why the happiness that comes from the self and self alone can never be endangered so when swami says all that you have to do is remove the desires and you will find the state what does it really mean doesn't it suggest that we all have that nature within each one of us and just that this mind filled with desires is what hides or impedes this natural ability to be self contained and self satisfied right it is almost like what is inside or what is beneath is being covered by what is on top and what is beneath 
is this ability to be self-satisfied and what is covering it is this mind filled with desires. And Swami says, the moment you start removing these desires, like pulling out a yarn from a cloth, one by one, strand by strand, when you remove it, the cloth vanishes and what is beneath will be seen, right? Even as I was going through this, I recall a very beautiful incident which uh, Brother Sai Prakash, uh, who's going to be following me for the Vahini Satsang, he was once sharing. This happened when they were in the school. Those days there was a young pujari who was in charge of doing puja for the Ganesh Mandir in the ashram. And one day when he was doing the Abhishekam for the statue, he noticed a crack on the idol. He was very perturbed by that because this was an idol that was being worshipped every day. And it was very inauspicious to have a, a crack on the idol that was being worshipped by so many people. So he rushed to Swami's presence and he said this to Swami. He said, Swami, we'll have to get a new idol and consecrate it because this idol has a crack. And he went on to say, you know, how uh, it is not right and the Shastras say this and that. Swami paused him for a moment and Swami asked him, which idol are you referring to? So he said, Swami, that uh, black idol of Lord Ganesha that is there in the entrance. Very calmly, Swami replies to him, see, two things. First of all, that is not a black idol. The idol that I've installed there is actually a deep red color. It is not black at all. right? And then he says, the crack which you have seen is not on the idol. It is there on the thick layer of dirt which has formed on the idol because of Abhishekam being done for so many years. And this uh, Pujari says, no Swami, it is not possible. I do Abhishekam for that idol every day, which means I also ensure that it is cleaned. It cannot have such a thick layer of dirt and have a crack on it. And I do Abhishekam every day and I know that it's a black idol. It is nowhere a deep red idol. And Swami is like very confidently saying, no, this is what it is. And then Swami gives him instructions. Swami says, you take very, very sour curds and you put some uh, rava in it. And Swami gives him a few other ingredients. Swami says, make a paste and then scrub the idol with this and then you will see. So the next day, and that is how Brother Sai Prakash came into the picture because a few of the school students helped the pujari do that cleaning of the idol. So very early in the morning, they go and they scrub the statue. And when they do that, they find the uh, crack vanishes with that thick layer of dirt. And when that was removed, they realized what Swami was saying was absolutely true. It was not a black idol. It was an idol which was deep red in color. The reason why I was reminded of this is, this is precisely what Swami is referring to when he says that the truth is always there, right? The idol is and always that color. But what makes it appear like it's a black idol? What makes it appear like it's an idol with a crack? It is that layer on top. So all that you have to do is remove that layer on top and what is underneath will shine forth, right? So the desires we have are like that thick layer of dirt. The moment we do away with it, Prajahati Yada Kaman Sarvan Manogatan When all the desires that arise in the mind are given up, then you will reveal the nature underneath. What is the nature underneath? Atmanyeva Atmanatushtaha The ability to be self-satisfied. And that is why the last line of what Swami says in that passage which I read out is very, very interesting. Swami says, when mind vanishes, one becomes steady in wisdom or one becomes a sthita pragna. Which means the wisdom is not in the mind. Swami is saying the mind has to vanish for the wisdom to shine forth. Which means the wisdom is not in the mind. The ultimate jnana or knowledge is never contained in the mind. This is the misconception and this idea has to be absolutely sorted out in our thinking, right? The Vedas say, the Mahavakya goes to describe Pragnanam Brahma, which means the knowledge is itself Brahma. It says Pragnanam Brahma, Pragnanam is Brahma, right? And then of course, Shankara goes on to say in his famous verse or description of Advaita, he says, Jivo Brahmaiva Na Apara, which means the individual soul or the self is Brahman. It is not distinct from Brahman. So we may say Pragnanam Brahma, which is knowledge is equal to Brahma. And when we say Brahma is equal to the self, it means that the divine self within is itself the wisdom. It is not going to obtain the wisdom. It is not going to develop the wisdom. It is not going to win the wisdom. It is the wisdom. Pragnanam Brahma, right? The soul within is the wisdom in itself. So when we remove the mind that is covering it, when we remove the mind that is blocking this wisdom from shining, what happens is nothing but the shining of the true brilliance from within. That is, 
we all are sthita pragna naturally we all have that steady wisdom we all have that self contained bliss and that quality of equanimity what disturbs it what keeps becoming a block to it the desires that keep arising in the mind so how does one go beyond the desires well, that's the million dollar question right swami gives a few very simple points that we can practically try and practice right but we'll come to that uh, discussion probably at the end of the day i could probably give you as three or four points that we can carry home at the end of the show but to conclude our discussion on this particular shoka for now krishna defines a sthita pragna as one who gives up desires as and when they occur in the mind swami said when the mind is sublimated there will be absolute wisdom right when the mind is completely gone there will be wisdom but the other option is as and when the desires occur in the mind they can be discarded right the word manogatan means as and when they arise in the mind manogatan so one does not have to be terrified by this idea that you know every time a desire occurs in the mind one does not have to get spooked and get worried about it but it's quite natural for the mind to have that desire you just have to ensure that as and when the desires arise they have to be removed right so this shloka as i said is the quintessential definition of what astita pragna is right he removes desires as and when they occur in the mind and he is self satisfied or self contained when it comes to his bliss the next verse of course is very interesting though this is the main definition of astita pragna what swami goes on to say next is also equally important and we can pick up a few more practical points from the next verse and that is what is important about the next verse so we listen to it verse number 56 i'll give you a short meaning of that and then we'll discuss that in detail dukhesh vanudvigna manaha sukheshu vigatas pruhaha ಭಯಕ್ರೋಧ ಸ್ಥಿತಧೀರ್ಮುನಿರುಚ್ಯತೆ ಹೀ ಹೂಸ್ ಮೈಂಡ್ ಇಸ್ ನಾಟ್ ಶೇಕನ್ ಬೈ ಅಡ್ವರ್ಸಿಟಿ ಹೂ ಡಸ್ ನಾಟ್ ಹ್ಯಾಂಕರ್ ಆಫ್ಟರ್ ಪ್ಲೆಷರ್ಸ್ ಆ್ಯಂಡ್ ಇಸ್ ಫ್ರೀ ಫ್ರಮ್ ಅಟ್ಯಾಚ್ಮೆಂಟ್ ಫಿಯರ್ ಆ್ಯಂಡ್ ಆಂಗರ್ ಇಸ್ ಕಾಲ್ಡ್ ಅ ಸೇಜ್ ಆಫ್ ಸ್ಟಡಿ ವಿಸ್ಡಮ್ sometimes when we use this word desires when we say that oh, we have to give up all desires or desires or karma right that's even more a scary word and then we say that karma is the cause for all the trouble and delusion it appears a little difficult to relate to we don't necessarily look at ourselves as people who are absolutely desirous or driven by passion of desire right most of us are normal people we go about our life and yeah we do have small desires and most often those desires are not necessarily dangerous or contagious right not all our desires are, are going to draw us into ruin so when talk of a state where all desires are given up it is honestly a little difficult to relate to right you're just walking down the road you see a very beautiful car driving by or somebody coming by in a, in a nice looking mountain bike you look at it and you say oh that looks nice that looks very cool right and you might for a moment probably picture yourself riding that bike or driving that car and then you forget it right it's not something that you always hold in your mind you just forget it you go on with your work so most of the desires that we encounter are probably harmless desires like this or sometimes we have these desires which become ambitions which define how we go about in our life it's very difficult to talk of these desires as something that need to be completely given up also when the idea behind arjuna asking about the attributes of astita pragna or the traits of astita pragna the way a wise person talks and walks the idea is the way that person carries himself will always be an expression of the inner quality or the inner nature of that person right somewhere we have the idea that by following the traits of a person who is like that we will also reach the same inner nature we see a very successful businessman let's say and we also aspire to be a successful businessman in our life we will try to study that person's life you know how many hours does he sleep or you know how does he conduct his meetings how often does he conduct his meetings how does he balance his life and work you know we always try to read that and we try to follow that i think it's quite natural thing or if you say we always have this people who are into investment they will look at somebody who is a very successful investor 
and they'll see the logic behind their investment or what is the working of their mind that can be seen by the way they invest or the way they lead their lives, right? So you look at that and you try to follow those traits. In fact, uh, when we were studying science, all of our teachers would always talk about these great scientists and they would talk about their approach to science, their approach to their lab work. And that used to be very inspiring because we know that if we are able to follow a little bit of that ethos or the work culture, we will also probably someday reach that state of understanding and wisdom, right? So we all have this idea that following the traits will to some point, to some extent, lead us to developing the nature that is inspiring these traits. And as I said, it is also true to an extent. The best example that Swami would always give is a noble person will never think of harming another person, right? So Swami will always tell us never harm another person. And so when we try to practice this trait, we might be in situations where we would really love to harm another person, you know, really get back at somebody or get even with somebody. But then we try to follow this trait of a noble person saying that, no, Swami has said that help ever hurt, never, you should never harm anybody. So it is a clear example of we trying to follow a trait, but eventually it will lead to goodness in the mind where very naturally and spontaneously we don't want to follow that particular trait, right? Or we want to follow that particular trait. I mean, we want to be a person of peace. So in that sense, it is true to an extent. And that is the basic idea behind Arjuna asking this question of, you know, Kim Masit, how does he sit and how does he walk? Why is he asking that question? Because there is a certain connectivity between the traits that are expressed and the nature of that person. And that is the idea. And Krishna gives a very clear definition of the fundamental nature that he self-contained, self-satisfied, he has no desires. But when Krishna says he is desireless, it is very difficult for me to relate to that. It is very difficult for me to find out what is that actionable trait I can pick up from there. You know, Swami comes and says, okay, all that you have to do is become desireless. I really cannot do anything after that. I need little more practical tips. So one of the practical tips which Swami has given in that previous verse itself is that you know, get rid of desires as and when they occur. So one of the hints that that statement gives me is, I don't have to get worked up every time a desire comes. Having desires is quite natural, right? That is a hint which it gives me, but nothing more than that. We need little more to act upon for that. Let's go back to the idea of the nature and trade business and let's see if we can pick up something from there. And this particular verse is very helpful for that. Arjuna was asking about, the traits of a sthita pragna to understand what is the nature behind that person. Let us for a moment ask ourselves, what is the trait of a person who has a lot of desires? A sthita pragna is one who has no desires. That's the definition Krishna has given. Let's take a person who is bang opposite to that. A person who is filled with desires. Right? Krishna uses the word kamatmana in one of the verses that we went through. Somebody who is always bubbling with desires. What will be the nature or the traits of such a person? If we can understand the traits of a person who is full of desires, then we can say the traits of a sthita pragna will be right opposite to that, isn't it? So what are the traits of a person who is filled with desires? First and foremost, there will be sadness, right? That person will be given to sorrow and sadness. Why does anybody become sad? Why do we ever become sad? When something unpleasant has happened to us, right? That makes us sad. Let's say someone dear to me has died. I become sad. What does that really mean? I desired that that person must live and that person ended up dying early, right? Which means I desired for something and that did not happen. I face a huge loss in my business and I'm completely down in the dumps. I did not desire this to happen to my business, but it happened, so I am sad. Right? So wanting something and not wanting something, both are two sides of the same coin. If you were to look at it that way, and this is of course not a new concept, we have discussed it already quite a few times on the show itself. This is what we refer to as Raga and Dvesha. Raga and Dvesha together form what we refer to as desires. There is something that I want, there is something I don't want, there is something that I want to avoid. Right? Both together form desires and the first obvious sign of a person who is filled with desires is that it is very easy to make that person unhappy. Don't give that person what he desires 
or make something happen that that person does not desire and that person will go into depression, right? So sadness or the ease with which a person goes into sadness and depression is a sign of a person who is filled with desires. So that gives us a hint as to what will be the traits of a stita pragna, that it should be completely opposite to what we described as the trait of a person who is filled with desires, right? And that's precisely what Krishna says. He says, Dukkeshu in all sorrows anudvigna manaha He has a mind that does not get agitated. Anudvigna manaha The mind of such a person does not get disturbed when he faces sorrows. And Krishna uses the word Dukkeshu. Dukkeshu means the plural of sorrows. Why does he say sorrows? He could have just said that his mind does not get affected by sorrow. He says sorrows and Swami explains this very clearly in the Gita Vahini and of course in other uh, discourses also. In fact, the commentary that Adi Shankara gives for this verse also refers to these three aspects which constitute the different kinds of sorrows. Swami would say that sorrow can be caused by three sources or they are categorized based on these three sources of sorrows and they are Adhyatmika, Adibhautika and Adidaivika. Adhyatmika means sorrow that comes from oneself, right? Meaning, say, a health problem or some mental worry. And to an extent, we have control over it, right? You have a sickness, you can treat it. Or if you have a depression, you have ways of cheering yourself up. So it is a sorrow that is coming from yourself. That is called Adhyatmika. Adhibhautika means sorrow that is caused by circumstances or your surroundings. My son is troubling me, my boss is troubling me. I have this incorrigible neighbor. All of these are Adi Bhautika and to an extent we can find remedies even for these. The third is Adi Daivika. As they say in the insurance agreements, acts of God, which mean floods, earthquakes and volcanoes and tsunamis, which you don't have any control over. If it happens, you just have to succumb to it or you just have to suffer it. There's no way you can stop such things from happening, right? Something which is completely beyond your control, which is coming over you. So when Krishna says Dukkeshu, he is referring to all these types of sorrows. Sorrows that come from your own self, from your own physical body. Sorrows that come through your relationships and your people around you. And the sorrow that comes through natural calamities that occur. So sorrow can come in all of these forms. But a stita pragna does not let the mind get disturbed by it. Krishna didn't say that a sthita pragna does not feel sad. Krishna says that a sthita pragna will not get disturbed by it. He did not say that he will not feel the pain. If a sthita pragna gets a headache, it's not that he will not feel the pain. If he gets a stomach pain, it's not that he will not find that cramps in his stomach. If you take a knife and stab him, it is not that he will not feel any pain. He says, Anudvigna manaha The mind is not agitated by the pain. So now this becomes a hint that we can take and follow, right? When we are telling that I am looking for traits of the sthita pragna, which I can pick up and follow and I can also become a sthita pragna. This becomes something that we can work with. The mind of a sthita pragna does not get disturbed by sorrow. Sorrow comes. As we go through life, there will be sorrow, there will be unhappy moments, there will be unpleasant moments. Much of it is beyond us. But when it comes we will not let it completely unsettle us, right? And how quickly we are able to pull ourselves from that moment of sorrow is something that we can practice in our day-to-day life, right? That is something that is easily practicable to us. So that is a hint which Krishna gives through this particular verse. He says, the mind should not be disturbed by sorrow. Similarly, when we talk about sorrow or sadness or depression being a definition or a trait of a person who is filled with desires. Happiness or elation too is a sign of a person who is filled with desires. It's very easy to make a person elated, right? So a person who is filled with desires, it's very easy to make him elated. Just like how you take away something which a person so really wants, he becomes unhappy. You give this person what he wants, he's going to be happy, right? So it is very easy to identify a person of desires through what makes them happy? A small increment in pay and they're like on top of the moon. Something very pleasant happens. Any worldly achievement, any worldly pleasure that comes their way, it would give them enormous amount of happiness and that is a sign of a person who is completely 
caught up in desires, right? So happiness or elation is a sign of a person with desires. And not only is it that they have these desires, because those small satisfaction of desires pleases them, they will go after those desires. They will go after fulfilling those desires. They will be craving for such happiness, right? When I become a millionaire, it makes me happy. It gives me a certain kind of a high. I want more millions. I want to repeat that action and increase my happiness, right? I have a certain desire fulfilled. It makes me happy. I want more desires to be fulfilled, right? So this craving starts fueling my actions or starts directing my life. Now, a sthita pragna should be bang opposite to this description that we have given. And that is again precisely what Krishna says. Sukheshu vigatas pruhaha. There is no yearning for pleasure. Again, it is a plural. It says sukheshu, pleasures. And pleasures also are adhyatmika, adibhautika and adidaivika. And Krishna clearly says vigatas pruhaha, meaning not having the craving. Will they not enjoy if something pleasant happens? Sthita Pragna, let's say, it's sizzling hot in Parthi now. Let's say there is a Sthita Pragna in Parthi. Will he not feel the pleasure if you give him a cold cup of water? Will he not find pleasure and comfort when he walks into an air-conditioned room? Definitely, a Sthita Pragna will also feel the pleasure. A Sthita Pragna will also enjoy a pleasure when it comes. But he will be a Sukeshu Vigatasprihaha which means he will be a person who is not driven by the craving for those pleasures. And that again becomes a workable hint for us. We can try and practice this particular trait which Krishna is explaining. At least when it comes to making decisions, when there is an option which is going to give us certain pleasure and there is an option which is the right thing to do, are we able to resist the temptation of doing what is going to give me immediate pleasure and am I able to do the right thing? What Swami has spoken extensively about as the choice that we have to make between Shreyas and Prayas. Prayas is something which gives me immediate pleasure. Shreyas is the right thing to do. The ability to choose Shreyas over Prayas. And that can come if my mind is not craving for the pleasure, isn't it? So this is a very, very practical, workable thing. So what does this Tattaprajna do? He does not crave for the pleasure or the satisfaction that comes from desires being fulfilled. So can we, at least when it comes to decision making, choose the right thing to do over something which is going to give me pleasure, right? And this is what is the description of a pragna. When you say a pragna is desireless, it becomes very difficult to understand it. If you say that he gets rid of desires as and when they come, okay, a little bit I can understand that. But now when you say he does not get unsettled by sorrow, he does not let his craving for pleasures guide his life, that becomes a description which is much, much more relatable, right? And that is what Asthita Pragna is. There is this very beautiful story that I have read and if you are a regular listener of me on radio, you would have heard the story for a couple of times, I'm sure. But I'll narrate that anyway. It's a very beautiful story of a Sufi master that I had read long back where there is this master who is definitely from the description is a sthita pragna, right? You don't have to be a follower of Hinduism to be a sthita pragna, whether you are a Muslim or a Christian or whatever you are, if you have this trait, right? That is why Krishna gives those two basic traits. That is what defines the sthita pragna, not where you are born or who you are, right? So this Sufi master who is certainly a sthita pragna is one day sitting in his house calmly and he is probably reading a book when suddenly one of his neighbors come running into the house and starts panting and he says, Master, Master, have you heard your son has fallen into the river? The Sufi master looks at this man and he looks up into the ceiling. There's a couple of seconds of silence and then he just smiles to himself. And this neighbor thinks, what's wrong with this man? I'm telling him such a shocking news that his son is drowning in the river and has he understood what I'm telling him? Right? And then he goes away bugged with this person's response. But after some time, he comes back again running and saying that, you know, Master, Master, don't worry. There's somebody who jumped into the river and they managed to catch him in time and your son has been saved. The response to that also of the Sufi Master is the same. He pauses for a few seconds, he looks up into the ceiling and then he gives out a very pleasant smile. Now, now this person is very intrigued. He tells him, now you have to explain this to me. I can understand this smile that, you know, your son has been saved and you're happy. 
but why did you smile the previous time? And then the Sufi master says, you know, when you came running into the room and you told me that my son is drowning, I looked at my mind and I was searching for grief. He says, I was searching for grief in the sense that I was seeing if my mind is actually becoming sad. And he said, it did not become sad. So I was happy and I smiled. And then he goes on to say, when you again came back into the room and you said, oh, your son has been saved. He said, I again looked at my mind and I was searching for happiness or elation. And there was no particular happiness or elation because of the news that my son was saved. And so I was happy and so I smiled. Right? So this is the typical description of Stitapragnya. Happiness does not make him go over the roof and sadness does not completely destabilize him. And this is something that can be practiced. For Stitapragnya, these states become natural. But when we are trying to practice the traits of Stitapragnya to become Stitapragnya, these are the two things that we can keep in mind. That are we able to stay stable under grief and are we also able to stay stable under the influence of a happy tiding, right? So sorrow and happiness in that sense are perceivable offshoots of desires, right? Similarly, there are a few more when we talk about as offshoots of desire and that is also described in this particular verse which we'll go through. When we get what we want, right? When we talk about desires, most of the time we talk of desires that are unfulfilled, right? I want to have a bigger house. I want to have this latest car. I want to have this latest mobile. So we always talk of desires as something that is, you know, which has not yet been fulfilled. But as we went through one of the verses uh, in the past couple of weeks, Krishna refers to as yoga and kshema. Yoga is wanting to achieve something and kshema is wanting to hold on to something that has already been achieved, right? So there are some desires which have already been achieved, right? Let's say you want to marry a certain person and you've already married that person. That's a desire which has been fulfilled. You wanted to build a big house for yourself. You've already built a house. That's a desire which has been fulfilled. When you say a desire like this has been fulfilled, are you ready for that desire to be taken away from you? No, you resist it, right? We resist something which we have achieved to be taken away from us. And that leads to attachment. Because we have entangled our happiness in that desire and the idea of that being taken away is going to give us more grief, right? So desire leads to attachment. This could be anything, desire for a particular person, desire for a comfort, for a convenience, for wealth or anything. We already have it and it becomes so much a part of us that when it is taken away, we are completely broken, right? And that is what we define as attachment. When we are attached to a person or a thing in this manner, the next trait slips in. What is that? When I am attached to a person, I always have the fear of losing that person. When I am attached to a house, when I am attached to a position in the organization that I am holding, I always have the fear of losing it, right? So, desire leads to attachment and attachment leads to fear. And most often, this fear expresses as anger. We think often that anger represents a very fierce nature or a very rajasic person. But in most cases, anger is nothing but an expression of fear and desire. When I wish to achieve something in life, I have a project, I want to get this through. If anybody gets up and questions the modalities of what I'm trying to do or you know the purpose of what I'm trying to do, I get angry because I want to achieve something and somebody is becoming a block for that. I want to attain something in life and the situations in life or, you know, the poverty that I'm having is becoming an obstacle to that. And that makes me angry, right? And that is what Swami would also say, that that anger is always a sign of weakness. It is not a sign of the ability to be very forceful or anything. And uh, oftentimes this example is given that uh, we always associate anger to a snake, right? A snake which strikes. If you look at it, a snake always strikes when it's in fear. A snake never attacks a person out of vengeance or out of anger when it happens in movies and serials, but not otherwise. A snake always strikes in self-defense, right? So anger is always a mechanism of self-defense. And when does self-defense come? It comes when there is attachment. And when does attachment come? When there are desires, right? So desires lead to sorrow and elation, right? 
and desires also lead to attachment fear and anger and that is precisely why krishna says in the second line of this verse describing the sthita pragna as vita raga bhaya krodha vita one who has given up raga attachment bhaya fear and krodha or anger here the word raga is used specifically with the meaning of attachment raga and dvesha that's a different concept here it is used as attachment so krishna describes a sthita pragna as vita raga bhaya krodha because the same domino effect of desire leading to anger and hatred and all of that will be described later in a verse very beautifully by krishna we'll come to that when we come to that but this is a very beautiful description of a sthita pragna which is given from the realm of abstract krishna is now bringing it to a realm that we can understand right now instead of you coming and telling me you become desireless if you come and tell me you work on your anger you work on your greed you work on your attachment now that becomes something that i can start working on right away right and that also tells us that when swami says control all of these things he is actually taking us to the ultimate he is not making us simply a pleasant person to work with or a pleasant person to have at home he is taking us to the ultimate state because these are the traits of a person who is a sthita pragna right and when all of this is maintained when the mind is so clear when it is not pulled by sorrow when it is not pulled by anger which is not pulled by desires the vision will be clear once discrimination will be steady and that is the last description that krishna gives of the sthita pragna in this particular verse he says sthita dihi munihi one whose mind is steady and he is a muni or a wise person right so we can say that krishna is answering arjuna's question in a manner that the description of a sthita pragna is not diluted by giving descriptions of his trait that is a standard description that he gave right he gives up the desires and he is established in the self he does not need anything else to make him happy that is the standard definition but this verse becomes a very beautiful description of things that we can follow and he is of course going to explain this further as i said in the verses that are going to follow i could probably do one more verse but instead of that i wanted to mention those three or four points which swami gives about giving up desires right when krishna says in that particular verse where he says you can give up the desires as and when they appear in the mind prajahati yada kaman sarvan manogatan even as they appear in the mind they can be given up so how do you give up desires yes i want to give up the desires as they appear in the mind but what am i supposed to do always that's the million dollar question you tell me what i am supposed to do don't tell me concepts tell me tomorrow when i wake up what can i start doing so swami gives some three points which are very very simple which we can contemplate on and i think which will help us in this particular journey the simplest thing he says is don't follow the mind desires will arise but don't follow the mind and swami gives a very beautiful analogy elsewhere which i heard from an old student swami would say that see you're walking in a marketplace and you're wearing very beautiful white fresh clothes and uh, the path is slushy and there is some crap lying all over the place you will be very careful not to step on anything right you don't want to spoil your footwear you don't want anything to splash on your clothes right you'll walk in a very very careful manner so the student said yes swami i'll be very careful when i walk on a road like that so swami asked him so when you are walking like this will you also be concerned about your shadow because your shadow will be going over all of the scrap and slush will you be equally concerned about your shadow he said no swami why will i be concerned about my shadow i'll be only concerned about my body right my clothes that i'm wearing then swami explained to him the mind craving after some things is like the shadow going over slush and crap don't worry about it the only thing that you have to do is ensure that your actions do not follow your mind every time it craves for something right and that is something that i think we all can contemplate in our mind and remember and do not every desire that arises in the mind needs to be followed it has to be discriminated is it the right thing for me to do does it fit into my ultimate goal or whatever is the immediate uh, duty that i have that discrimination is what swami is referring to so the first thing is 
when Swami says that don't entertain the desires even as they appear in the mind and get rid of them, it means don't let actions follow the mind every time the mind goes after desires. The second point that Swami makes in that particular uh, chapter in Gita Vaini is, Swami says, you must watch the working of the mind from outside it. Do not get involved in it. Always remember you are the seer, the observer. Now this is a very, very important point and I think uh, Swami has spoken extensively about it. The ability for us to remember that we are not the mind, right? The ability to look at the mind and say the mind is craving for this. The mind is feeling this pressure. The mind is feeling this sorrow. And the ability to detach our true self from the mind is a very, very important tool in giving up desires or to deal with the mind. I remember this very beautiful interaction uh, that I heard from somebody. Ramana Maharishi used to have this huge tumor on his shoulder, I think, right shoulder, which became very painful and they had to do, they had to give a lot of dressing to it. Seeing a person with that kind of an ulcer or a tumor on his shoulder was itself so paining, so, you know, hurting. So they went and asked Ramana Maharishi, he said, you know, Bhagwan, is it hurting to you? And he very casually he said, yeah, it is hurting the body, right? The ability to step back and say that this is the body and this is the mind, I am not the body, I am not the mind, is something that we can practice every day remembering in our mind. So Swami says, don't look at a desire that arises in the mind as this is my desire, but can we cultivate this understanding that this is a desire that is arising in the mind. That is why Swami says, can you always remember that you are the seer, you are the observer, right? All desires, all objects are the seen. They are material, but you are the one who is observing. So can we develop this attitude of observing the mind, right? Saying that this is the desire in the mind. That is the second point that Swami says. And the third one is, the faculty of the mind is like a strong current of electricity. It has to be watched from a distance and not be contacted or touched. Touch the current and you reduce to ashes. So to contact and attachment give the mind the chance to ruin. The farther you are from it, the better. By skillful methods, you have to make the best use of it for your own welfare. Right? Swami gives this very powerful analogy of mind being like a current. It is very useful, but we don't go and embrace electricity saying that, oh, electricity, you do so much good for me, right? You keep as far away from it as possible, but at the same time, you make best use of it. And that is how the mind has to be treated. Swami says, every time you indulge the mind, there is going to be this domino effect of whatever Swami was said of anger and desire and sorrow and happiness and all of that, right? So the ability to step back and not follow the mind and... uh the point I think I've also wanted to add to this, which I missed out is Swami saying the ability to talk to your mind as though you're talking to a friend. Keep conversing with the mind and saying that, no, this is not right. This is what we want in life and this is what we want to achieve. This does not fit into that. Right. So these are the three points which Swami says when Swami says give up desires as they arise in the mind. How do you do that? These are the three simple points that Swami gives. Start by detaching yourself from the mind. Start by observing the mind and be very clear and certain in your mind. Again, I'm using the word mind. Be very clear and certain that we should not follow whatever the mind craves for and that layer of discrimination is placed as many times as possible. Right. So these are the points that Swami gives. The worst that I thought I would be able to cover verse number 57 is a summary of what Krishna said in the past two verses. We'll probably start with that verse next week. It's a simple verse. But thereafter, as I said, Krishna is going to concentrate more on getting rid of desires than the part of being established in the joy that comes from the self. Because that will automatically happen if this first part is taken care of. So with that, dear listeners, we'll have to conclude this week's episode. Thank you for joining me. If you have any comments on what was shared here. If you have any suggestions, feel free to write to us. Listener at RadioSci.org is the feedback mail. Now, of course, you can send us your feedback by WhatsApp too. Our WhatsApp number is 9393258258. That is 9393258258. And you can send us your comments and your suggestions through that too. 
I'll join you all again next week for the next episode of the Gita series, A Triune Pilgrimage. Till then, happy listening.